If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 12-12. This is the World According to Zig podcast for August 25th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And as is always the case, I urge you to check out my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast dealing directly with the news of the day involving President Donald Trump. As is always the case, there's tons of news there, so make sure to check out episode number 49, which we also dropped on this day, August 25th, 2019. And related to that, I also want you to check out, and you can go to freespeechbroadcasting.com to get to the Individual One podcast, as well as what I'm referring to now, which is an eight-part series that I've written for Mediate, detailing the mainstream news media's decline and Donald Trump's rise to be president of the United States, because there's a direct connection and correlation. And today we dropped uh, part number seven of that eight-part series. Thank you to Mediate for allowing me to have the, uh, the time and space to do this. Um, Part 8 will be out on Monday, August 26th. And frankly, I think it's really good. It's very important. I think it puts everything into context. We are so much about what's today and what's tomorrow and looking at the next thing that we never look back at the past in a way that provides us proper context to understand how we got there and to understand where we're going next. So, If you're at all interested in that, please make sure you go to freespeechbroadcasting.com. And the first seven parts of the series are already up right there at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And part eight will be out uh, tomorrow, which you can find at my uh, Twitter handle, which is Zygmunt Freud. As far as today's World According to Zig podcast, so much to get to. We will get to the latest developments with regard to the fraud that is leaving Neverland and Geraldo Rivera coming out and calling them uh, the accusers and leaving Neverland liars because of a new deposition, or not a new deposition, but a, a new video of Wade Robson's deposition that has been recently released in a documentary. I'll also have an update on what's going on with my hope 
uh, underline the word hope uh, for some vindication on the Penn State story that could be coming very, very soon. Um, Joe Walsh has announced for president in the Republican primary against Donald Trump, and I have a uh, a very personal connection to what's going on there. I'll I'll briefly share that. Uh, I also want to talk about uh, Andrew Luck of the Indianapolis Colts retiring and the larger meaning of that, as well as a a funny story about uh, taking my kids to go see The Lion King, the uh, pseudo-live action version. So all that is uh, coming up on the World According to Zig podcast. But first, I want to do an interview that certainly relates to leaving Neverland and, uh, I guess, tangentially to the uh, Penn State stories and others that we've discussed it is the guy who, whose work I really respect, a, um, a, a YouTuber who became uh, uh, somewhat famous for his Honest Trailer series. His name is Andy Signor, and uh, I wanted to talk to him about a new project he has coming up. So let's do that now. Andy Signor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Andy, uh, I was first familiar with you with your uh, tremendous work on Honest Trailers, which were hilarious. Uh, Before we get into why I asked you on the podcast, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience there. Yeah, I was a YouTube creator that had pretty big success, and Honest Trailers was our biggest series. Uh, We got Emmy-nominated several times. Um, It was a series where we basically best marketing for films uh, in a humorous way, and it ended up taking off so well that we got Ryan Reynolds himself to do Deadpool in our Deadpool Honest Trailer uh, we had the Russo brothers who directed all the big Marvel movies. Apparently, were were trying to honest trailer proof their movie uh, Captain America when they were making it. So it, it ended up doing really well, not only just obviously online but in the industry. So that uh, was on our channel, Screen Junkies, and I built several other uh, big shows. I built a sword building show called Man at Arms that went to TV. Uh, long story short, I had a lot of success in digital, some and starting to translate into broadcast um, that I was very proud of. And then what happened? Well, uh, basically, overnight, um, well, actually, it was longer than overnight, but what happened to me overnight was publicly, uh, two people came forward um, saying, one, uh, fans that I engaged with, flirted with online, um, one of which uh, ballooned the story into accusations of sexual assault. Um, she then, without any evidence, went on to tear me down. Um, so even my colleagues were, former colleagues and, and friends were sort of self-doubting, were doubting me. Um, the problem in my story was, the, you know, the one truth that I have, I have completely taken accountability for and I need to is I was cheating on my wife, and I'm, I'm immensely not proud of that. It's something that obviously was the real pain for my story, but she knew that I was not only doing that with her but with others, and she sort of exploited that, I believe, um, to sort of out me as sort of a person that was not nice. Um, but she took it to a step further by accusing me of, of you know, attempted sexual assault. Um, and her specific charge really crippled me, um, and it prompted other people I'd, you know, fans and, uh, I had engaged with on Twitter um, as like, you're cute, or oh wow, this really, you know, awkward, but normal flirtatious exchanges that if I were single I don't believe would have been a problem, um, but the problem was now it was all painted under this brush of this accuser who was accusing me of these awful, awful things. Um, I went in to try and was planning to come in to tell my employer the truth. Um, that weekend I was fired uh, through a press release um, and basically everything was destroyed overnight um, and then went through a lawsuit, uh, eventually settled, um, and I couldn't talk about this case for two years. Um, 
that I'd been sitting on these text messages and emails that really showed the truth about my accuser. Um, whether I should have held on to them or not, that's a debate that can be can later. Uh, but the reality is that legally I wasn't, I wasn't being advised to share them. Um, and finally, once the lawsuit was settled and I was able to come forward, I released a video a couple weeks ago that really, I think, turned a lot of heads, uh, made people think twice. And now, as the Me Too movement is sort of, I think some people are really coming around to realize we jumped to a lot of conclusions. I've thankfully been, you know, a lot of people have been coming forward and apologizing for judging me the way they did, uh, which has been grateful. But crazily enough, the mass media won't you know, publish it. They were so quick to turn me down, but now they don't want to have egg on their face and say, well, it looks like there was more to this story, uh, which is seemingly what the media does every time now. Uh, but that's the long, you know, long story short of it. So, so, and I don't, I don't know the details of your specific situation, um, but, but I mean, I, you know, you, you seem like you're telling the truth to me based upon what I've seen online and, and in speaking to you. But just to be clear, so you did have an affair with this accuser. You just didn't assault her. Is that your, is that your story? Yeah, I mean, we had a consensual affair, and if you, I, I basically put together a. Uh, it's about a 20-minute statement video where I, I break it all down. And in that video, I show everything She and, and her next to her statements. Um, and I'm really able to prove that she's caught in lies. Um, her, her statement after everything came forward was, I was you know, I knew some of this might come forward, but I still knew it was the right thing to do. This is my truth, and I'm sticking to it, and I'm moving forward. It was just a very frustrating reply that was not really a denial <laughs> or, or anything. Um, but when this all happened, yeah, she was accusing me of taking advantage of her, using her, trying to force myself on her. When the reality is, if you read the emails, the texts, and the nude photos she sent me, this was a completely consensual affair. She knew I was married. She was totally on board. She wanted access to the program. She was using me. Um, and she was completely never, there was never anything that wasn't consensual between two adults. Uh, but she, you know, I think didn't want to seem like a, uh, what's the word, you know, just because she was using me for access. Um, she ended up dating one of my employees uh, right after me, and I think was just getting nervous about her, him finding out. So she painted it in a much more malicious brush, which then every interaction I ever made uh, just destroyed me, is the bottom line of the story. Uh, and I couldn't, I, I, to this day, I'm still having trouble getting work, but thank God over the past few weeks I've been able to, you know, shine light on my story. Um, and, it's, and like I said, people are, are fine when they see the evidence and they, you know, a lot of them were still a little doubting it when it all went down. Like, well, this doesn't make sense. Um, there was reason it didn't make sense. And now with, thank God, the texts and emails that can sort of really break down the truth of the story, people are finally coming around and, and, and coming around to give me a second shot, which I'm grateful for. But what's really sad is a lot of people don't keep the text. Uh, and then women like this can just say whatever they want. And the guy is screwed uh, moving forward, and that's really what's scary about this new movement we live in. You you said that uh, she said this is her truth. It sounds like she's uh, quoting Oprah Winfrey. That's one of uh, Oprah Winfrey's uh, favorite lines, which drives me crazy. There's only one truth. Uh, there's not the your, truth. Your, your, your your yeah, the truth, not your truth. But you also mentioned that there was a settlement. Did, did she sue you, or what, what? What was the nature of the settlement? Why and why did you settle? Yeah, I, I can't get into the details of the settlement and all that stuff. That's the one thing I'm not able to do. Um, but um, we, I, 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 uh, my case and complaint were public. Um, it was against my former employer for terminating me. Okay, so you, um, okay, so you, you didn't settle with I her. Was going after, yeah, I was going after my employer. The problem with okay. her is she, you know, no lawyer wanted to take it because she, uh, nobody with no money. And as much as I want to morally and ethically take that on, it's hard when it's just a regular civilian. Um, and I obviously lost 
all my money <laughs> went down. So, right. you know, that, that that's what happened. So focusing on the employer was really the goal for me and my family and, and my Okay, attorneys. so so you settled a, a case that you brought, not one that she brought, just to, to be, make it very Correct. clear I to people. Correct. I brought against my former employer, who also, mind you, was ended up shut, got shut down last year, um, which, again, I, I shouldn't get in all the weeds of that stuff um, for legal reasons. But, yeah, just to give you the backstory, yeah, it was a company I worked for, mm. and, and we've settled. Um, but my case against her, mm. I've been able to take public that she wasn't an employee. That's the other thing. A lot of people were saying, oh, he was sexually harassing his employees and et cetera. It wasn't the case. It was, uh, it was, they were fans of mine who were engaging with me, and that's where things, um, that's where the, the conversation always goes to, well, you shouldn't have been seeking relationships with your fans, and I, I have trouble following that. I, I think that's just sort of hmm. a common thing for rock stars and celebrities of sort of why a lot of people get fans. Uh, the thing that was wrong in my situation was I was married, and that isn't what I'm being, you know, that's not what people are charging me with. It's, it's it's the assaults, the charges, it's all these other bigger charges that people are coming at me for, um, when the reality is I was a douchebag in that I should have done that to my family. That's the thing I'm really, you know, have been working on the past years of why did I do that. I don't, I, I think, you know, hold on a conversation, I'll let you lead the, the thing, but that, that's obviously the, the trouble of what I did in my life and what I'm remorseful mm-hmm. for. Um, but was, what was frustrating is she was using that to sort of paint me as a, a, an abuser. Um, and that's, when you're labeled that, right. it's hard to recover. No, it's impossible. And as far as dating fans, I know in my own personal life, if, if I hadn't never dated a fan, I'm not sure I would have had much of a dating life. In fact, I wouldn't be married. Um, but, but that's another story for another day. The, um, but as far as your situation and this nightmare that you went through, and let's presume for the sake of argument everything you're telling us is true, what did you learn about the nature of the news media through all this? I mean, they only, they, they really want the salacious headlines, um, and they don't want to fact check. Um, and they, they really just want that, you know, I think it's, I think it's changing slightly now because I think some of them are getting, you know, taken to court. Um, I think in the early, you got to remember also, I don't know, because I, I don't know how familiar you were with my case, but I was literally the second person after Harvey Weinstein announced. It was like October 6th, um, when Ashley Judd's article came out and really started the Me Too movement. I was literally the second person. So the media just didn't, they were just hungry for it. They wanted any, I wasn't even that famous. And that's what's so scary about these Me Too cases over the past years. There are, you know, above, below the line people who seem like, oh, they must be YouTube billionaires. And they're like, no, we, we were destroyed financially and just livelihoods gone um, because we couldn't defend ourselves. We couldn't afford to defend ourselves the way we, we, we should have been able to. Um, so I see now that the media just really doesn't care. They they just want the salacious headline. They don't want to check it. And now later, as I provide the evidence, you know, I had a friend of mine who worked at a big publication, and, and I, I he was all ready to report it. And then when he saw my statement, where my statement calls out the media, um, they didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. He's like, "Sorry, we can't we can't publish this." And no major media outlet will publish it. Only big, you know, online blogs and podcasts and YouTube channels. We're the only ones that were able to spread the news, which thankfully they did, and it went viral that way. Uh, but it's just really scary to see what the media wants to say and doesn't want to say. Well, it's all about their own self-interest, and they don't want to be made to look bad. They don't want to be made to look like they rushed to judgment. And then they also, you know, they can always just say, well, it's old news now. You know, I mean, it was it was news back then, but of course – the inherent disadvantage that someone has in defending themselves 
is that in order to defend yourself against an accusation like this, you need a lot of time. You need, I mean, you can make an accusation in two sentences in a tweet. You can't respond in a tweet. You you have to have, as you said, text messages and context, and you be you need to explain a whole lot of things. And especially when you're not a big celebrity, you don't have access to a platform to be able to do that to a large number of people. And so, and then you get involved in a lawsuit, and you're you're effectively, uh, you know, you're censored. Uh, for a couple of years, and by the time you can get your story out, it's too old. It's too late. It's too old news. The the damage has been done. So, a person like yourself is at an, an incredible disadvantage, even more so than a celebrity who at least might have some money and cachet uh, to do a, a major media interview or what have you. So, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And part of the reason why I asked you on the podcast is that you're actually trying to do something about this what you're calling cancel culture uh where you feel like you were canceled and and you are now uh, trying to detail the stories of other people who have been unfairly canceled uh, by uh, both the me too movement and i guess in general this this notion that we have that as soon as we get uh, a, a, a figment of any story that upsets us outrages us our initial reaction, especially on Twitter, is to cancel the person, and this is what you're calling cancel culture. So tell us, tell us about what you're trying to do there. Yeah, it's I, I absolutely would cancel overnight, uh, and I think as you said it right, this is sort of a new a fad. I think, especially on social media, where people can, you know, they want, you know, they're they just want to feel good and, and like uh, a seemingly positive movement, but they don't understand that they're destroying not only someone's life but the family everything around them. And so as this happened to me, and I finally was able to stand back up and regain some of my celebrity thank, thank, thankfully, over the past couple weeks, um, I've, been, I've been lucky enough to earn a spotlight back. Um, and as I did that, I realized, you know, there were so many people that were reaching out to me, hundreds of them, that had been through similar situations. And, I, you know, I took them all with a grain of salt because I you never, you do want to make sure you hear both sides of the story. Um, but as I sort of looked into a few of the people that were reaching out, it was just clear to me that, so many people have been wronged and just judged and kicked out to the curb. And then as they sort of get the opportunity to sort of defend themselves, like you said, the media has moved on, no one cares, there's no platform for them. They're all just sort of, you know, now silent. Um, so many people that just want to be heard, um, that I feel like have the right to be heard and don't have the platform to do it. And that's when the idea sort of spurred to me of a series I'm, I'm doing called Hugging the Cactus. Um, and it was, a, it was a term actually I heard, uh, Mel Gibson coined it when he was uh, with Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr. was sort of at his lowest, you know, alcoholism, et cetera. And now he's obviously Mr. Everybody Loves Him and Iron Man and, and really, I think, has changed for the better. Um, when he was at, at his lowest point, Mel Gibson took him in and said, you know, uh, you gotta, you got to embrace the, the, the ugly in you. If you, you hug it and really do it, at some point you'll be, you know, you'll learn from this and, be a better person because of it. And he called it hugging the cactus. And it really spoke with me during sort of my period of being canceled. And so the show is that it's sort of finding other people who went wronged or not, or just pushed out, canceled, etc. People who have been through this experience and just really want their voice heard and need a platform to be heard. Um, and I have two specific stories. I just dropped a trailer. If you look it up on Kickstarter, um, hugging the cactus, or you go to uncancelled.com with one L, uh, uncancel, um, and then ed.com. You can learn more about this, but, um, I have two amazing stories so far, and so many more coming. Uh, but one is with a she's a, politi- a politician named Kaylin Ford, politician in Canada, um, and she was having these academic conversations with a friend of hers years ago. 
um, that were completely taken out of context and mis sort of misshared uh, and painted her as a white supremacist supporter, um, which then immediately went to, well, she is a white supremacist. And overnight, this wonderful, smart mother of two, who's not at all anywhere near that, was painted that way, and her political and this all career was destroyed. She couldn't do any of the international human rights she was working on, and she couldn't support her kids. Um, and it was heartbreaking, the story. And if you watch the trailer, I think it really, her story specifically speaks to a lot of people. But then on the other side of the coin, there's a filmmaker named Gail Wheatley, who made a film called Don's Plum back in 1996. And Leonardo DiCaprio, with all his power, uh, canceled him. He was a rising star at the time and friends with Gale, as uh, Toby McGuire, who eventually became Spider-Man, was also in the film. And this was right at the cusp of their sort of fame. While they were out there, you know, case the skirts, um, they didn't want the movie to come out. Um, Toby himself actually was Machiavellian and how he sort of pitted Dale against Leo. And it's just this amazingly salacious but crazy story. But really this sort of really turn of friends. And beyond that, Leo to this day, two decades later, has now just destroyed Dale's career. And he's the man can never work again when he did nothing wrong. He just made a film and then suddenly tried to get the film released. And now, you know, Leo painted him as a uh, opportunist who was just trying to use his name at the time and, and sully him. Uh, both of these stories are immensely, uh, heart, you know, heartbreaking for me. And you just realize there's so many more to tell. And so the opportunity of this, of this show is really to have these conversations and use the spotlight on the crewing again to help, you know, just give people the opportunity to say their piece, be able to say it, and hopefully get some support and love. Uh, because right now, I feel like as a society, we're so polarizing, we're so divisive right now, and attacking everybody that it's just not good. It's not good for us. We need to be able to support people and extend a hand when they're down. Um, even if they, you know, uh, did something wrong, people have the chance to, should have the chance to right that wrong, to get forgiveness, to work on themselves. Uh, and social media doesn't believe that right now. So I want to push against that sort of cancel culture idea and attempt to cancel that cancel culture and really sort of put the spotlight on these stories so people can see how often it's happening and the damage it does to people, just emotionally, financially. Uh, it's really brutal. Andy, um, let me ask you about some of the more high-profile situations that are related to the Me Too movement where people have either been sure. canceled or have uh, attempted to be, be canceled by the media or elements of the, of the news media. And uh, on this a particular podcast, we've focused on two situations in particular, most recently over the last several months in light of the HBO documentary or movie, as I refer to it, fantasy film, really, uh, Leaving Neverland, accusing Michael Jackson uh, of uh, sexual abuse, brutal sexual abuse against uh, two men, uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who now suddenly, many years later, have salacious uh, stories that are detailed by uh, the director of the movie, Dan Reed. Uh, where do you stand on Michael Jackson's attempted canceling, which apparently has not gone uh, nearly as well as the filmmakers would have hoped or anticipated? Yeah, I think that, that story to me, that, that film you call it, that frustrates me the most just because it's, I agree. With I've seen some of your pieces on this. My, I'm with you because, um, I, 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 full disclosure, I, I've, I've spoken to and been friendly with Taj, who I know is a defender of this too. And I'm completely on his side. I think what's really unfair about that film and what's happening to Michael, one, obviously the, the right that he can't defend himself. It's really disgusting to me that we're just sort of kicking him while he's down. But two, the, that film is just a complete hit job without any uh, side of the other story. And I'm very frustrated by those two uh, people, those two individuals. I think it's incredibly unfair of that filmmaker 
you know, he's saying, well, this is their story, yada, 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 but their story is destroying a man and his livelihood, his career, and his children, and all this stuff that's just not, not okay with me. It doesn't sit well with me. Um, I don't, I, the, the, speaking directly about the film, I think the film is unfair, and I think Michael should have the right to have his music. I, I mean, I'm sad his, like, his episode of The Simpsons is one of my favorites that my kids and I love to watch, and that episode has now been canceled. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic, who's an idol of mine, his two songs, his, you know, Michael Jackson parodies were not on tour this season when I took my kids to finally see him live, and I was, we, were, we were super bummed. And this idea now that this film by these two people who perjured themselves and if not, are the most unreliable witnesses in the world. But now everyone's just like, see, yeah, everything must have been true. It uh, really breaks my heart. Um, I think people have the chance to prove that, you know, over Michael's life. They always weren't able to. Um, I don't believe there's any evidence or anything that says Michael did any of the atrocious things they're saying. It's all hearsay. Um, I do believe Michael had a really tough upbringing, and that was really, and it's really hard to sort of put myself in the shoes of what was he doing. Um, I do think, you know, Michael did some inappropriate things. Like, I don't like that he was sleeping in the beds with children, which he admitted on that show. But that doesn't mean I think he was molesting them. Um, there's a lot of stuff I've read where he was just asexual. Um, and he just wanted that childlike innocence with these killers, kids. And I can, well, I would never allow him to do that with my children, I'll be honest. You know, I don't believe he was doing it maliciously. Um, and even beyond all that, I believe you have to separate art from the artist and us canceling the music and trying to, ruin his legacy and that affects his children and his family. It's just not right. Um, so, yeah, I'm not a fan of what they're doing to him, and I, I still proudly play my Michael Jackson music with my kids, and I will forever celebrate him and his legendary status because I believe what's happening there was immensely unfair. And for the record, you mentioned Taj, Taj Jackson, who is the nephew of Michael Jackson, who has appeared on, on this podcast uh, previously. Uh, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but I've devoted about seven years to the whole Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case. And regardless of what you make of the case, there is absolutely no possible way to logically uh, uh, support the idea that Joe Paterno, who much like Michael Jackson is now deceased, should be canceled or erased from the history of college football, which this being the 150th anniversary of, of college football, there's a lot of retrospectives, and already uh, Joe Paterno is effectively being canceled. He's the all-time winningest coach in the history of college football, and he barely ever gets mentioned and sometimes gets totally erased uh, for what I strongly believe and know more about than probably anybody in the world, including Jerry Sandusky. Uh, was not a situation where he was in any way, shape, or form enabling a child sex abuse. What? What? Will you have any opinions on uh, on that particular story? No, to be honest, that's one that was before. I really wanted to focus on that. I'm not a college football fan. I, I read the headlines, and I don't want to chime in because I maybe don't know the full story of that. Um, but I'm happy to send me some links. I'd love to research and hear some of the blow you've done. But I don't It'll blow yeah, your I mind. <laughs> I can assure you, Andy, it will blow your mind because this is when this is all said and done. Uh, the um, I believe, hopefully, one day, maybe soon, uh, the the history of this entire cancellation movement, uh, the Salem witch trialification 
uh, of our media. This will be the seminal moment. This will be the moment that uh, everyone lost their minds forever. Uh, and uh, I'll be happy to educate you on that. Are there any other high-profile situations that stick out in your mind? I, I happen to have gotten to know Matt Lauer a little bit, having appeared on uh, with him three times on the Today Show and rather major interviews. And I know I can, had very combative interviews with him, did not agree with him on most things. He, he did not do me any favors, but I got to know him a little bit. And I know people close to him, and I believe he was totally railroaded for political purposes, effectively a, a sacrificial lamb for the Me Too movement because NBC News needed a scalp because they had killed the Ronan Farrow Harvey Weinstein story, and they also wanted to get rid of a big contract. Uh, any, any opinions on him or anybody else uh, uh, that also got uh, – canceled in the in the post harvey weinstein me too era i mean i don't i i i, I paid more attention to that lauer story because that was happening right after me and i clearly anybody was going down i don't know the facts i i i do agree with you though that there seemed to be a lot of problems at nbc beyond just you know allegedly him um you know at the same time i don't i don't know it's like in my case as i look at these stories it's like I don't think I'm 100% innocent. You know, the, the frustration is like, yeah, I cheated on my wife, and I believe he may have too. And that's what, that's, that rubs people the wrong way. Should that have, you know, publicly tarred and feathered him the way we did? No, maybe not. I think that's fair. But does he deserve to, like, you know, look himself hard in the mirror and, and make some changes in the life? Maybe. Um, and I think that's what's so hard about this whole movement and some of these stories. It's like, I don't want to come out and say yes or no on everybody. I think everybody should have the right to defend themselves, and he didn't, um, and he hasn't had the opportunity. We just completely just torched him. So for that sake, I don't like it because I want to know well, what's your side of the story. Um, you know that's that's important. Um, and in cases with him, though, it's like you know he has a lot of money, so I feel a little less worried about him because mm-hmm. you know he, he and his wife have ten have mansions. They can go take that time and pause. You know, like John Lasseter was one that was really fascinating to me, the head of Pixar, and he's another one. that's like, did it really affect him? I don't think it did. Um, did he do some things that made women feel uncomfortable? Sounds like he did. He sounds like he admitted and apologized for that. Should he have never worked again? Absolutely not. The dude's a legend who's made stories that are going to stand the test of time. Um, and it sounds like he already got a job. Um, so it's tough. Like some of these cases, it's, it's, it's case by case. The ones that really affect me more are the ones that are like, I think Matt Lauer is going to get an opportunity to work again. And I think, you know, he's got enough money, and I think he, if he does it right and does what I think, you know, people can do through p- proper PR, he will. Like, Louis C.K. is probably the biggest one that's connected to me, and I, I'm, I'm really tied into and fascinated by. Um, I, I assume you're familiar with his story, yes? I, I, you got garbled there, so I wasn't even sure who you mentioned. The Louis C.K., the comedian? Oh, yeah, yeah, Louis C.K., sure. Yeah, yeah, Louis C.K. was the one that I was paying close attention. I think it's, it's, you know, that one's really fascinating to me because he is like a comedian that has just built his reputation on being honest and wrong. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I think a lot of people wanted to hear him say what happened. Like, they were waiting for him to, like, make his special and come forward and just come clean and, and do a sort of take us to church, if you will, like, like his, his comedy set. And, I'm, and instead he went out and sort of did a little test, and I don't know if he's prepping a thing or not, but I really wish he would just come out and just say it because I think people would embrace him again. Um, in his story specifically, it's, it's complicated because from everything I've read and people close to what I've heard, he would ask for permission before he exposed himself and did what he wanted to do. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that makes it a little bit more, more complicated, you know? Um, and even Sarah Silverman, the comedian, came forward and was like, yeah, I said yes. I, I wanted to watch him do that. 
And so it's like a, it's a weird blurred line we live in now of like, right. well, is that assault? I don't know. You know, and so my point is like, there are so many of these where there's so many, it's hard to just chop it up to like, yes or no or whatever. Do I think he was also railroaded? Yes. Do I think he, his career will be destroyed though? No. Um, so as we navigate me too, I think there's a little bit of, you know, there's some other people out there that I think in a smaller tier that you wouldn't even know who have been wronged and then completely are torched because the way Google rankings work, you know, people can't get jobs because, you know, a bunch of really, the, the trades write about some editor of a small right. media company that you wouldn't know. Um, but his name now, it's for, nothing's ever going to get above that listing. And so every time that person goes and gets a job, right. he's screwed. No. But Matt Lauer, I mean, if he wanted to make a big chunk of money to do some sort of return, I think he could. So my, my point is it's, it's complicated. The ones I connect to and really feel for are the ones that are a lot lower tier that we're not talking about, that no one even knows, and mm. that they can't you know, pay for their kids right now. Um, that's scary because, you know, do I think Matt Lauer made some mistakes? He probably did. Did he just deserve to be as blown up out of proportion as it was? No. Um, does that make sense? No, sure. I mean, for the record, I, I believe that Matt Lauer had an affair on his wife with a with a colleague at the Olympics, uh, which he was supposed to disclose and never did because he was Matt freaking Lauer and uh, never had to in the past. And the NBC decided to suddenly enforce a rule they had never enforced before because they wanted to get rid of him. That's what happened. Um, and, exactly. Like the fact that NBC totally knew, and you're absolutely right, that's the problem with that case. And they allowed him to do it. And then suddenly, when the movement came to their door, oh no, we weren't allowing that. And then suddenly, yeah, Matt Lauer gets the hell out. That, that's a, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a huge problem that people don't talk about in that case. All right. Well, Andy, um, thanks so much for joining us. Let people know how they can find out more and, and support what you're doing with this uh, Hugging the Cactus project. Yeah, they can look me up on Kickstarter or you can go to Uncanceled. Uh, that's with one L. There's on the word uncanceled.com. Um, or you can look me up, Andy Signor, S I G N O R E social media on youtube i have a channel called popcorn planet where i really link to that kickstarter all week but i got a week left uh, and if anybody has a story they want to share uh or are offering you know can offer to help sponsor or support this we're like 75 percent funded i'm trying to reach a ten thousand dollar goal which i think we'll be able to do by the end of the week uh, but i can't do it without supporters so anybody out there who uh, agrees with this cancel culture needing to be canceled uh, and wants to sort of share more of these stories i'd be grateful for support and thank you so much john for letting me Come on and spread the word. No problem. And I, as far as sharing stories, i got about four or five I could share with you that will blow your mind. Yeah, let's, so. let's talk off air, and I'd love to hear because I'm, I'm currently prepping more stories that need to be out there, and I think it sounds like we definitely could share some. All right. Thanks, Andy. You take care. Good luck. Thanks, John. Have a great day. That's uh, Andy Signor. Thanks so much for his time. So that leads us into the latest on uh, leaving Neverland, and uh, there have been some developments you know, to those who have followed the story, none of these are shocking, but it's interesting what sometimes gets the major media's attention. Uh, a couple of weeks ago now, there was the release via an online documentary of Wade Robson's video testimony, which was done just before he did his interviews with Dan Reed for the film. And that's important. And to me, the most significant thing about, from a substantive standpoint, from a factual basis, of what we got from the video clips of that deposition. And I, by the way, I have no idea how the deposition got leaked. I'm assuming it had some connection to the Jackson estate. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would have done it the way that they did it, but I wasn't consulted. Uh, but it got out there, and that's good. 
And it got some media attention because of, I've already referenced, uh, Geraldo Rivera decided to use it as, uh, as his cover to come out and call uh, Robson, uh, Robson and, uh, and Safechuck uh, liars on Fox News Channel, which I'll get to shortly. But the substantive revelation, here, which is important, it sounds like a small thing, but it's not, is that uh, Robson is telling a completely different story in his deposition under oath about his reaction to Michael Jackson's death than he did in the movie. And why is that important? Well, it's important, one, because any contradiction in your story over such a short period of time should immediately raise alarm bells, right? I mean, your story should be consistent, especially over something as big as that. I mean, you know, this is a guy who you're saying abused you for seven years. You were on record uh, being his biggest fan. You testified to this 2005 trial. You were your entire persona was about Michael who uh, begged for tickets for your whole family go, to go to the funeral. You go to the funeral. Uh, you, you you write all sorts of very uh, uh, wonderfully praising things about Michael Jackson. I mean, over the top. Uh, and and you uh, are asked in your deposition, did you go to the funeral and did you cry? And uh, Robson claims to not remember. He's not sure. He might have. Uh, you know, if he did, it wasn't that big of a deal. That's the whole impression that you get. And then in the movie, which he did the interview for just two months later, it's a totally different story. Uh, he's clearly there. He's sobbing. Uh, this is, you know, but it's all part of the trauma of having gone through this horrific abuse and then seeing Michael Jackson die and his, he's experiencing confusion and all that. Now, I understand more than anybody that um, alleged accusers get an enormous amount of slack on how they're allowed to behave in any kind of situation. I mean, there's almost no behavior. None <laughs> can't be rationalized to fit if people want to believe that they were abused. But in this particular context, here's why this is important. This is important, one, because of the timing and, and how dramatically different the story is. But also, the, this is, I think, the smoking gun of the influence of the director of the film, Dan Reed. Because it is clear that the reason why the story changes is that Dan Reed has decided this is the narrative he wants. See, Wade Robson in the deposition before Dan Reed gets involved thinks that him crying at Michael Jackson's funeral is a bad thing for his case because he's thinking logically. He's not a moron. He knows that this is damaging when... Uh, Dan Reed gets a hold of this. He says, no, 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 no. And this is me making an educated guess. He's saying, no, 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 no. No, we want you to be as upset as possible because, first of all, the record's pretty clear you were there. So let's own this and and let's turn into the curve and let's turn into the, the, the trauma that you experienced here. And I am of the very firm belief that if the lawsuit allows – the Jackson estate to get the outtakes of the interviews that Dan Reed did with Wade Robson and James Savechuck, that we're going to see that what I'm saying is 100% true, that these guys were coached, that this was done as a feature film, not a documentary. That's why it took three days, that there were multiple takes of the same answer, and, uh, and that this was done in a way where literally Dan Reed was the director. 
as opposed to simply the guy telling the story or allowing uh, Savechuk and Robson to tell their stories. He's directing the story because that's the only logical way to explain how Robson's story changes so dramatically in just two months, so far away from the fact. And there are other things in the deposition that are also very damaging, and and Wade Robson just doesn't come across as credible. It appears to the average person that he knows he's lying and he's embarrassed about it uh, as he's lying in his deposition. But that's a a matter of of someone's subjective impression of it. That's not necessarily a, a factual assessment that can be made. As far as Geraldo Rivera's reaction and Fox News Channel airing that, what the way I perceived that was Geraldo has always believed that this was bullcrap or suspected that it was bullcrap. He's been a fan of Michael Jackson's for a very long time. He's been a sometime defender of Michael Jackson, and he was just looking for an excuse. He was looking for political cover, and the deposition was enough to give him political cover to go out on Fox News Channel and say this is all BS. Unfortunately, that didn't go very far. Uh, It was a positive step, and it might give some other people some theoretical cover, but partially because of Geraldo's history and partially maybe more so because of Fox News Channel's sellout to Donald Trump, Fox News Channel has zero uh, cachet or influence now in the rest of the news media. So because Geraldo Rivera says something on Fox News Channel, as dramatic as it was, it doesn't have any impact on how the rest of the news media is going to react. And the rest of the news media already has their narrative. They're not going to change that narrative unless it's in their best interest to do so. And uh, this is the most frustrating element of this entire issue, whether it's Michael Jackson or the Penn State situation or others. You can make an allegation like this in literally a sentence or two. To be able to deconstruct that allegation, it takes a lot of time. I mean, literally, even me just explaining it uh, often takes minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, sometimes longer than that. You don't have that kind of time in this day and age, especially in the media. We're living in a Twitter world. If it can't fit in a tweet, it doesn't count. Which is why the James Savechuk train uh, station story, where the train station didn't exist when he said he was abused by Michael Jackson at Neverland, why that's so important. Even though it's just a tiny data point and, frankly, it didn't impact me personally all that much because I already uh, had come to the conclusion he was lying. But it's an effective weapon because that you can fit in a tweet. And it's pathetic and it's sad, but that's the world we live in. And fighting now from behind with no leverage when the story is now old is almost impossible, especially on a politically correct story that involves child sex abuse because the media doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to admit they were wrong. They don't want to admit they rushed to judgment. It's not what gets reported anymore. It's what gets repeated. And this is never going to get repeated. And even the, the, the Robson deposition, it's too nuanced and, and complicated Uh, and takes too long to explain why it's important for it to have a massive public impact. I mean, we're really at the point now where unless you get Wade Robson or James Safechuck saying, I lied, I made this up, or their moms saying, I lied, I made this up, or Oprah Winfrey saying, I got duped, I'm sorry, short of that, nothing is going to have a massive impact. Does every little bit help? Sure. But you're really only helping 
uh, keep the, the fan base intact. And frankly, that based upon my base for Michael Jackson is, in, is intact uh, as it could possibly ever be. They've been amazing. Uh, I've been astonished uh, by uh, their reaction to all this and has been very substantive almost in every case. And so that's really not a major problem. Again, I'm not suggesting that this is, doesn't have value, but in the bigger picture, I don't think it changes fundamentally anything. Uh, and changing anything fundamentally is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, uh, under the circumstances of the nature of the modern news media and the subject of child sex abuse. Speaking of that, I have referenced that in my own personal hell, which has been the last seven or eight years of me uh, investigating the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky story in a way that no one else was willing or able to do, I have been hopeful that coming up very shortly, I would get at least some semblance of vindication. Now, my expectations, having lived through this hell for the last seven or eight years, are incredibly uh, small, very low. Um, but I have reason to believe very, uh, that in September, very well-respected author, people who have heard this before are probably aware who, of whom I'm speaking, uh, who is going to write or has written a chapter about this particular case. Now, they're taking a much broader view based upon my conversations with this author. They're not going to specifically focus or defend necessarily Jerry Sandusky, as I ended up doing after several years of investigation and and presuming Sandusky was guilty at first and then becoming totally convinced of his innocence many years later after interviewing him twice in prison and reinvestigating the entire case. Um, So that is going to happen. And in fact, we currently have an interview with that author scheduled for just before the release of the book. Everything in my life is incredibly frustrating, uh, and nothing ever goes exactly as uh, planned. Uh, The author told me I would have the book by now, and I don't have the book by now. Uh, And and so, you know, every day I'm going out to the mailbox going, okay, is this finally going to be the day when I can – say to somebody, hey, so-and-so says I'm right about this, because he says I'm uh, positively referenced, my work is, uh, in this particular chapter. But unfortunately, I have not yet received the book. So I don't know to what degree uh, this author has been willing or able to go. The fact that he's already uh, offered to do an interview with me gives me some confidence because he's a very smart guy. (laughs) And if he did a really bad job with this, I don't think he would agree to do an interview with me uh, for for this particular podcast. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have as much information to to share with you as I would like. There is another development, though, and this is – I think the Michael Jackson fans will – particularly appreciate um, the frustrating nature of, of this development. And I don't want to get too much into it because uh, the, the dust hasn't totally settled yet, but the entire Jerry Sandusky case really comes down to one accuser. Uh, it was victim number one. His name is Aaron Fisher. And I had wrongly presumed that Aaron Fisher was totally credible. That was one of the biggest mistakes I made in this entire investigation I didn't even focus on him because he had written a book. He had done a major TV interview. Uh, He had come forward before anybody else did. Uh, And it just seemed to me, okay, he has to be credible because I was very naive and uneducated, frankly, at the time uh, about what was capable in in these kinds of stories. 
Well, incredibly long story short, um, I now know that Aaron's not telling the truth, and I have interviews with 13 people very close to him uh, in various forms who know that Aaron Fisher was not abused by Jerry Sandusky. And it's really remarkable uh, how almost universally, I'm talking about very close people, including uh, relatives by marriage, close relatives by marriage to Aaron Fisher, uh, who do not believe this, and people who knew him very well at the time, friends of his at the time of the alleged abuse. Uh, and so I have, uh, Aaron Fisher and I have quite a history. Uh, Aaron has uh, threatened me with death. He's threatened to run me over with his truck. Uh, he has refused to take a lie detector test that I offered to pay for after his mother had accepted the offer. Um, he, uh, he will not speak to me. I've been to his house. Uh, I, I, have, I would love nothing more than for Aaron Fisher to prove to me uh, that he's a credible uh, accuser of Jerry Sandusky because then I could be done with this whole thing. But I don't believe that will ever happen because he's not. Uh, and Aaron Fisher is a, is a bad person. And there's more evidence that Aaron Fisher is a bad person and has just come out on the Facebook page of his wife. Although I'm not sure uh, she may or may not still be his wife at this point. Uh, But his wife, Mallory, uh, has posted on Facebook, and these posts were sent to me, uh, that Aaron Fisher raped her and that Aaron Fisher uh, abused her physically. Um, And uh, now the the frustration here is... (laughs) In the real world, a, a, a child sex abuse victim uh, does not go around uh, raping uh, their wife, their wife, does not physically abuse their, abuse their wife. Now, the, uh, the CSA uh, terrorists, and many of them, that's who these people are, they're terrorists, who will believe anything, will tell you that that's because, th- because they were abused, because they were sexually abused as children, that's why they're abusing somebody else. And I'm sure that there are examples of that happening, like there's examples of everything happening in the world. But based upon my research, there is no evidence whatsoever that would suggest that a child sex abuse victim is more likely to abuse a spouse or that that would be the reason why that they would abuse their spouse. I fully realize that in this case, there is, much like Michael Jackson, there's no game changer. But this is particularly interesting uh, given the history of Aaron Fisher, and I am efforting having a conversation uh, with his uh, wife. I guess she's still his wife, although I'm not optimistic based upon past history that I'll be able to pull that off. But I found that that was worthy of at least mention. So I'll keep you in the loop on what's going on with that book. And uh, hopefully by uh, the next edition of the World According to Zig podcast, uh, I'll know more. Speaking of things that have been very personally frustrating and painful to me, uh, Joe Walsh, who is a friend of mine and has been on this podcast before, announced today that he's going to be running against Donald Trump for the Republican uh, presidential nomination. Now, you might be wondering, John, why is this personally painful? Well, <laughs> I can't get into all the details right now, and I really I cannot stand when this happens. I'm a very good uh, green light person. I'm a very good red light person. I'm a terrible yellow light person. Uh, And on this particular story, I have yellow lights all over the place. Uh, But let me just say a couple things in general, and then hopefully one day I'll be able to tell the full story about Joe Walsh uh, running against uh, Donald Trump. First of all, I wish Joe the best. I hope he he does great. I hope he kicks the crap out of Donald Trump as much as is humanly possible. Uh, I hope that he's able to make a dent 
in uh, the Republican uh, primary electorate and and make a very uh, credible run at this. I will say that Joe and I have had a lot of conversations about this uh, over the last couple of months. And that at one point, maybe two different points, I was pretty convinced there was a very good chance that I was going to decide to work on his campaign. And I, I mean, like, to the point where I had spoken with my wife, my father, my employer, and, you know, I was still very much on the fence about not him or his campaign or the idea of running against uh, Donald Trump, but whether or not this was a good idea in general for me and whether it was logistically doable, because uh, it's a very large commitment to take, you know, several months, maybe longer of your life uh, away from two young kids and what have you. Well, I was not, um, and and this is not Joe's fault because Joe has been incredibly busy, obviously building a campaign against Donald Trump. But uh, things went a little sideways for for Joe and I uh, with regard to our our communication and where we were on uh, where things stood and where we were going. And and so I became very uh, frustrated and frankly personally hurt by uh, a lot of what went down. And again, it has nothing to do with Joe Walsh as a candidate or whether or not uh, I wish him the best or support him against uh, Donald Trump. It's just one of these things that happens, especially when people get very, very busy. And I'm at the point in my life at 52 years old where I've been crapped on uh, for most of my career. I'm done. I'm done being disrespected. I'm done uh, being in situations where... Uh, you know, people can you know decide the, that they want to take advantage of me or whatever. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And so I left things with Joe several days ago before uh, he officially announced that he was going to run that, uh, hey, look, good luck on your launch. Let's touch base sometime uh, later, which was basically how I left it. I have no idea if and when that will happen. Uh, but it's been a point of very uh, uh, personal pain because it's been a it's been a frustrating experience. Again, trying to separate Joe from this as much as possible, uh, but it just it seems to be the way my life goes. That things that should be uh, good never turn out <laughs> to be that way. In fact, often turn out to create more pain uh, than anything else from a personal perspective. But that the I don't believe that that uh, book has been closed as of yet. I want to wait until I speak to Joe to be able to fully grasp where things are. But in the short run, I I do want to wish him the best of luck uh, because somebody has to run against uh, Donald Trump, if only from a historical and principled perspective. And so for that, uh, I do hope that he is very successful in what he's doing. And I'll get into more of that in the Individual One podcast uh, in today's episode number 49. A couple other things before uh, we end this particular edition of the World According to Zig podcast. I mentioned I wanted to talk about Andrew Luck retiring from the Indianapolis Colts. Now, normally, we don't get into too much sports on this podcast, but to me, this is a big deal, not because it's going to probably ruin the Indianapolis Colts season. I really couldn't care much about that. Uh, For those who don't know who Andrew Luck is, Andrew Luck is a former Stanford quarterback who is probably – one of the best young quarterbacks in the National Football League. In fact, you know, there's a there's a series of quarterbacks who led obviously by Tom Brady who are in their late 30s. Brady is actually 40, 
who have been dominant in the league for many years. Andrew Luck is 29 years old. Of his age group, he's the premier quarterback or was the premier quarterback in the National Football League. And last night, he shocked the world by announcing a week and a half, basically, before the season starts, that uh, he's retiring. And, um, and, you know, this was stunning to a lot of people, but not really uh, for me once I thought about it for two seconds, because I think that this is going to be the future. I really think that football has a massive problem. It's a combination of two basic things that uh, are, are in direct contradiction to each other and which create a set of circumstances where I'm not sure that the game can survive in anything close to the, uh, the current state that it has been in or, or, or even still is to, to some degree. And here's what I mean by that. So Andrew Luck has had a lot of injuries in his career. Uh, now, there's no evidence that he was going to be physically unable to play this year although he had an ankle problem that was not healing properly. But, uh, you know, he had a very good 2018. He was very good last year, one of his best, if not the best year of his career. I've been coming, coming back from a, another injury. And so at 29 years old, in the past, no quarterback of his stature would ever think about retiring. You just wouldn't, wouldn't be part of who you were. In fact, the Indianapolis Colts previously had Peyton Manning, who had undergone some major neck surgeries. They cut him, and he ends up going to the Denver Broncos and going to two Super Bowls, winning one of them. Now, he had very little to do with it, but he was at least the quarterback uh, for the team that won the Super Bowl. And so, um, you know, Peyton Manning never thought about retiring, uh, uh, at least until it, you know, he couldn't physically perform anymore at a much older age than Andrew Luck. But here's the situation. Because football players are now making so much money, and because of the fact that we have this concussion issue, although there's no evidence that uh, this was a major issue with luck in particular, but there's a lot of evidence and growing evidence that football players suffer major brain damage because of concussions that they suffer playing the game, and there's been all sorts of rule changes, many of which I do not agree with, that have tried to rectify this problem, at least from a PR perspective, you have a situation where in a short period of time, a football player like Andrew Luck can more than make enough money to live comfortably the rest of their lives. This was not always the case. In fact, this wasn't the case until at least, you know about 10, 15 years ago. In the glory days, which was my youth, the 1970s and 1980s, a superstar had to play the rest of their their whole career, uh, unless they were Jim Brown and they could go make movies or whatever. They had to they had to play as long as they possibly could in order to make sure that they were comfortable for the rest of their life. And even then, sometimes they weren't able to do so. So when you have a guy at 29 who has more than enough money to live the rest of his life. He's vested in a tremendous pension program. Just ask O.J. Simpson, by the way, about the, uh, the pension program, which you can't touch even if, if uh, you kill two people, but I digress. And so you're set for life. And the, playing football is very physically taxing, and it's potentially dangerous, and it's an aggravation, and you know, you're not healthy, and you're not enjoying yourself 
in Andrew Luck's mind, why bother continuing? Why bother? What? So you can win a Super Bowl? Yeah, maybe. There's 32 teams in the National Football League. The chances of the Colts winning a Super Bowl in the next few years, eh, at best, 1 in 10? Why why are you going to continue? Because you want to make the Hall of Fame? So that your kids can go see a Boston Cant in Ohio and you can wear a yellow jacket? Now, those things really matter. But they don't mean shit now. Okay, I mean, I shouldn't say they don't mean shit. But they don't, they're not enough to make an Andrew Luck decide, I'm going to stick it out on the off chance that that might happen. Because, by the way, there's no guarantee. You know, he, he could get hurt again this year. He's, he's not yet a Hall, Hall of Fame quarterback. you got to usually win a Super Bowl to make the Hall of Fame. So uh, the value system, the dynamic, the economics of all this has changed. And what I mean by economics is not just the money that they're making, but the equation, the economic equation that the players are making in their heads. And, you know, I, I've joked about this before, uh, and, and, I, and I do mean it mostly as a joke, but pro sports basically started with the gladiators, right? If you think about the history of pro sports, pro sports basically started with the gladiators in the Roman Coliseum. And uh, people loved that because the the gladiators were literally putting their lives on the line to create entertainment. And there was big stakes, life and death. And guess what? The gladiators weren't making any money. Well, if you think about the history of pro sports, eventually the gladiators formed a union and got a collective bargaining agreement. (laughs) And they changed the rules because of the collective bargaining agreement. So we're no longer the gladiators could get killed by the lions or whoever was killing them. They changed all the rules. The lions weren't allowed to bite them anymore. And, and uh, you know, the, the people in the Coliseum, they started thinking, well, you know, that, that's not that much fun. I'm here to see some blood. Uh, and, and then the gladiators over time started to make so much money that the, there really wasn't even any major stakes in it for them. They didn't care whether they won or lost because they were still rich beyond all comprehension. Well, if that had happened in gladiator times, let me tell you, they would have shut down the Coliseum. Uh, They would have shut down the gladiator games because no one would have given a damn. Well, that's where we are now. And, and, And some of it, by the way, is for the good. I'm not suggesting to be inhumane. There's part, you know, football. Everything in life is a pendulum. Often in life, the pendulum, almost always, the pendulum swings too far in the other direction. There was a time when football was too brutal. Now it's becoming pussified. Uh, and, uh, and, and in my opinion, too much so. And I believe that eventually this golden goose, and it might be pretty darn soon, is going to be killed. Because uh, the guys are making too much money. It doesn't really matter to them. They can retire whenever they want. And, uh, and there's just not the same stakes there's just not that gladiatorial feel of life or death here. And, and, and if the Super Bowl and the Hall of Fame is the only thing keeping a player like Andrew Luck around, that's not going to be enough. And once guys start retiring at the age of 29 on a regular basis, guess what? You can't have superstars because you can't be a superstar in four years or five years. Tom Brady is a massive superstar because he's been playing in Super Bowls for almost 20 years. The entire country knows who he is. Not the case with Andrew Luck. 
And so I think this is a seminal moment uh, for the National Football League. And I think uh, football in general is in big, big trouble. I think college football has major issues. And I'm, I'm someone who has coached football, written a book about a high school football team in Ohio. I've loved – I never played football because I was a scrawny little kid and went to a Catholic school with no football team. But, and then went to Georgetown, which we basically had no uh, football team. But I love football. And I think uh, football has never been in greater danger in the modern era uh, and probably never been in greater danger since they almost outlawed football in the early 1900s uh, than it is today. Uh, and it's gotten too big, too much money, and it's going to implode on itself. Uh, kind of like the U.S. economy, but that's another story for another day. You can see it in golf, too. And, and this weekend is a perfect example of that. They got this tour championship, which Tiger Woods didn't qualify for. Phil Mickelson didn't qualify for. Even the winner of the British Open, Shane Lowry, didn't qualify for. The winner gets $15 million, right? Now, 10 years ago, that would have gotten people excited. Wow, $15 million to the winner of one golf tournament. That's going to get some pulses racing. Today, they don't give a flying fuck. You think you think that any of the top players, and that's who's going to be going for this in all likelihood. You think Brooks Kepka? You see Brooks Kepka's girlfriend. You've seen his his bank account, his trophy case. You think his pulse rate is going to increase today if he's got a chance to win fifteen million dollars? Of course, minus taxes uh, in a golf tournament. No, no, it's based upon a, a dynamic that no longer exists. They don't care. And if they don't care, why is the fan going to care? And if the fan doesn't care, the TV ratings go down and then everything implodes because that's what's paying the money in the first place is the TV ratings. So I think that there's a definite correlation between too much money in football and too much money in golf. Finally, I'm going to end with a um, a story of taking my kids along with my wife to go see the, uh, The Lion King. And uh, this should give you a pretty good insight into the nature of my life. Now, you've, you've probably, if you're a fan of this uh, podcast, you know my, my eldest daughter, seven-year-old Grace. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? All right, probably the most uh, famous thing she's ever said on this uh, show. Maybe the, the most <laughs> interesting statement anyone's ever made on this show. Best question anyone's ever asked. Um, and uh, so I have seven-year-old uh, Grace and two-year-old Diana. And... Um, we have this thing where when dad is gone uh, for dinner, Grace immediately says, that means we're going to McDonald's, to McDonald's. And she's basically doing the, the uh, floss dance when she does this. We're going to McDonald's, to McDonald's. And Because, so, you know, for whatever reason, when I'm not home, my wife decides usually not to cook, and she takes the kids to the McDonald's. And Grace knows this gets under my skin because she's happy that I'm not going to be home for dinner. Well, this is fine. I got no problem with this. It's kind of funny. And, uh, and so this has evolved over time to not just if dad is gone for dinner. It has evolved to the point where this is what she will say if we somehow, and I know it sounds strange that this would even come up, but if it ever comes up that dad might die, like what would happen if dad died? Grace's reaction now is, McDonald's, McDonald's, we're going to McDonald's. And again, mostly to get on dad's, under dad's skin. But that the, her first reaction would be joy over dad's death because that night we're going to McDonald's. So uh, we go to see The Lion King. 
And, of course, anyone who's ever seen The Lion King knows that in the first half of the movie, the climactic moment is when Mufasa dies. The father, the father figure dies. And, uh, and Simba, of course, uh, you know, is, is uh, going up to his dad and going, what, you know, Dad, wake up. Are you okay? And, and I'm anticipating this moment. I'm wondering how my kids are going to react to see Mufasa uh, dying on the big screen. Uh, Diana didn't seem to be all that impacted, but, you know, she's two years old and she doesn't seem to be impacted by all that much. But she was great during the movie. She was able to sit through the whole thing and she enjoyed it and whatever. But I actually, in my head, I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, I'm going to play a trick on Grace because I'm going to wait until just after uh, Simba has realized that Mufasa is dead. And I'm going to lean over to Grace, who's sitting next to me, and I'm going to say, McDonald's, McDonald's, he's going to McDonald's. Well, sure enough, sure enough, Grace beats me to the punch. And and as soon as Mufasa dies, she leans over to me and says, McDonald's, McDonald's, we're going to McDonald's. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You got to respect that. As much as that's insulting to dad, you kind of got to respect Grace's, first of all, her comic timing. And the fact that she even thought about it. I mean, this took some thought on her part. Here, I was the one thinking about it in a premeditative fashion, and she beat me to the punch. So more power to Grace Ziegler. I am the leader. Do as I say. I'm loving it. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. This is always the case. Please remember to check out the Individual One podcast. And uh, two things I only ask of you. Number one, share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. Number two, Uh, Do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. (laughs) Performance bedding? (laughs) Yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.